Little Wing is now streaming on Paramount Plus. I'm in a period of emotional upheaval. Is that all the oh, I don't care crap? A little adventure. Where are you going? I'm gonna steal a bird from the Russian pigeon mafia. Let's do it. Goes a long way. <laughs> Starring Brooklyn Prince with Kelly Riley and Brian Cox. Life can hurt, but life is sweet. Little Wing, rated PG-13, may be inappropriate for children under 13. Now streaming exclusively on Fairmount Plus. Welcome to Supernatural Circumstances, the podcast where we take you down the rabbit hole into the enigmatic world of the strange, the paranormal, and the unknown. I'm Morgan Knutson. And I am Mike Brown. It's time to dim the lights and settle in. Come along with us on this week's adventure. Ooh. <laughs> uh, we're here to talk about the Seaford Poltergeist. And this is something that I'm not super familiar with, but for people who know I'm writing another book, this may make an appearance in my next oh, book. Maybe. This would be a good one to cover. Really good. Tell me a little bit about the Seaford Poltergeist, because I am sure everybody's curious about what the heck is gone on in Seaford, Long Island, New York in 1958. Yeah. And this was actually a, a case that was brought forward again by a, a colleague of mine, Dr. Kieran O'Keefe, and he kind of pushed this back into the spotlight again just in the last number of years. So that's kind of interesting because it is a 1958 case, like you were saying, took place in New York City or in Long Island, New York. And the incidents in this were really publicized. Uh, everything from bottles losing their tops and spilling contents, objects flying, like this was right out of poltergeist. <laughs> wow. It was really highly investigated. And I think to me, this is what makes this case so interesting. So who's involved? Who's the family that's involved here? So the family consisted of James and Lucille Herman and their children, also named Lucille and James. Oh, uh, very creative. <laughs> uh, they were they were inventive back then. So yeah. mm. uh, and the Lu Lucy was only 13. James was 12. Mm -hmm. So right hitting in that sort of puberty range, uh, you know, our kids are kind of working through some stuff. Yep. And the first really weird incident started in February of 1958 when James came home from school and he found a ceramic doll and a ship model lying broken on his dresser as if the doll had had somehow mysteriously fallen into or crashed into the ship on its own and they, they couldn't explain it which kind of launched a plethora of events over the next you know week or so that were bizarre to say the least. So it, this only went on for a week or was there was there more activity after that? It was it was quite short. Um, it was a little bit longer than a week. It was I believe it was a, roughly around a month. Okay. Um, that this but it faded in and out like there would be a week where this thing would pick right up um, and then it would fade away until this just quit entirely. So this is some a pattern that you're going to often see with basically what we're going to be talking about which is psychokinesis and and PK cases where you've got these sort of escalations in activity and then all of a sudden they kind of dim off and 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 die away. So this is not unusual, but this case was highly documented by one of my favorite researchers. And he really went through the gamut of of testing this to figure out what this could be. And this is uh, 
curious to me, maybe it's because I'm such a noob, but it was centered around a 12-year-old boy. Typically, when we see these stories in popular culture, they tend to be centered around young girls. But this one is centered around the boy James a little more? Yeah, and James was what they call the epicenter of, of what was going on, or, or Bill Roll, the the uh, investigator who mm. was on top of this, is is definitely what he felt. And the the idea that women versus men are kind of more susceptible to one or the to this type of activity is not really true. Statistically, right. when we look back at uh, experiments and things like that, it's usually pretty even, and it's a little more dependent on personality traits. So people that are outgoing, that are a little more open-minded, that are um, more outgoing, are typically the ones that actually experience more of this uh, rather than people who maybe are, you know, disbelievers or skeptics or, or something like that. So you mean the movies lied to us and they're trying to tell us a narrative that isn't necessarily true? I know it's a heartbreak, isn't it? Right. <laughs> so what were some other incidents that went on? A doll smashed a ship. What else? Yeah, there was a bunch of things, including uh, the the next incident, which I think was what disturbed uh, the the parents the most. Uh, Mrs. Herman ended up finding a, a small holy water bottle on her dresser on its side with the cap removed and the contents spilled. And I think initially they thought, well, you know, it, it tipped over. But that's fine. But during the next 45 minutes, noises were heard all over the house as bottles were being opened and just the tops were coming off. They were being spilled in various rooms. And it even got to the point where a half gallon bottle of bleach that had been on a shelf sitting in a cardboard box smashed on the floor about six feet in front of where James and his mother were standing. Oh, wow. So there was a lot going on. And it was within a, a few days of that, the disturbances extended to other objects like porcelain and plastic figurines. Mm -hmm. They were moving around, colliding, flying through the air with some like pretty great force. There was larger objects being thrown, night tables, phonographs. I mean, a you can case. picture a, <laughs> a bookcase. Yeah, like you can picture a scene out of the movie Poltergeist and you've yeah. pretty much got the idea. So who are we talking to this week about this case? We have the most wonderful Paul Bestel this of week, course, who yes. is one of my favorite people and the host of the Mysteries and Monsters podcast. And I've been on his show so many times. He is such a delight and such an absolute wealth of information, not only on this case, but a whole bunch of others. Doesn't he do another podcast too? He does. He does yeah. the ghost story, guys. With, with another person we've talked to, Brennan Storr. Brennan Storr, yeah. yeah. And it just both of them are absolutely brilliant. And he knows what I love about Paul, especially for this case, is that this case was investigated by some extremely brilliant researchers mm -hmm. from the Society of Psychical Research. Uh, William Roll being chief among them, yeah. Absolutely. And um, he was no joke. And the trickery and the lengths he went to to rule this stuff out were, was is pretty impressive. So we'll hear about that as well. Cool. Great. Well, let's get to that. I can't wait. This episode is brought to you by Paramount+. Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG-13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Dreaming of a better sleep? 
tossing and turning is not your destiny. And Ollie is here to help. Ollie invites you to sink into sweet, sweet slumber to improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness. More than just melatonin, Ollie's ingredients help you unwind your mind for a delightfully dreamy drift off. Sleep is on the way at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. This is such a fascinating case because it's been a relatively high profile case. And I, I think there's elements that gets get discussed, but elements that also don't get discussed about this case. And in the spirit of the new season of Sur- Supernatural Circumstances, uh, we're really delving into not only what these cases are, but also the, the why and the how so we can kind of dissect and, and allow the public and us and everybody to, to kind of understand the development of how this kind of thing can happen because we kind of see these things as like a almost like a, a fairy tale that happened somewhere else but it really Paula didn't no no it's uh it's a crazy case and it's one of those that comes in this kind of post-war poltergeist pandemic one would say <laughs> really it's um it's it's very interesting there's there's several big cases that happen in this particular decade that i think don't get the credit or the attention that perhaps they deserve it's one of those that it's it's a very quick poltergeist case it lasts just under five weeks from february the 3rd 1958 to the last confirmed incident which all happened on the 10th of march 1958 and so it's very quick but it's Mm. one of those that it seemed to go from not to 100 very quickly in regards to how quickly it became publicized and people got involved and some of the great and the good of of that era as parapsychology were involved so it's a it's a very interesting case what happened how did it start so it's a normal Weekday from from the reports where Lucille, this is one of the strange things about this family, the mo- mother and father are both are called James and Lucille, as are the children, which I would imagine could be confusing at times in that particular house. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's one yeah. of those little odd things about this particular case. Um, and Lucille's a housewife. Her husband, James Sr., worked for Air France. He was based at New York. So... She was at home awaiting the children's return from school. And apparently on the 3rd of February, the children returned from school. And as they arrived, several bottles decided to pop their lids and spill their contents around the house. So there was incidents in the kitchen, the bedroom, the bathroom and the basement, I believe. And that ushered in the arrival of Popper. Interesting. So, how did they come to the oh, the idea that that this this entity was named Popper? Did it just come from because the fact that he popped the lids off of things? Absolutely spot on. Yes, <laughs> perfect. <laughs> Makes complete <laughs> sense. Well, and, you know, it's funny because this this case is really peppered with unexplained movements of objects. There seemed to be mm. all sorts of crazy things that were mm. that were going on. Was there any record? at the beginning as to what this family was thinking like were they yeah yeah what did they think it was at first well, the dad was convinced it was james jr 
first few days. His son was mm. apparently uh, a model student, very bright, very intelligent, loved science. And so the father thought that his son had somehow rigged these bottles to pop their lids to surprise right. his mum and his sister. Um, so over the next few days, the father followed the son around the house. And just what every kid wants. Couldn't. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> when you're a twelve-year-old boy. Um, so, so he um, he just wanted to make sure. So, but he was he just thought it was a prank, was getting out of hand, and therefore he was going to confront James and say, "You know, I know what's going on. Just stop it off now." But things carried on, and he couldn't he couldn't find out how he'd done it. He was watching him like a hawk, and things were still happening. So. After a couple of days, he confronted him on a morning whilst he was whilst the, the the junior was brushing his teeth, and said, "You know, I know what's going on here. It's ridiculous. You need to stop it off." And as they were scolding him, two mm-hmm. bottles behind the sun moved of their own volition in the bathroom. One fell off into the sink, and the other slid off the opposite direction. And at that point, the dad thought, "Hmm." Maybe it's not James Jr. that's doing this. This is a bit peculiar. Yeah, no kidding. Mm-hmm. It, well, it, it it's interesting, too, because I know during the next segment of time, everything from not only just these, these little bottles that were popping and whatnot, but there was a, allegedly a half-gallon bottle of bleach that had been on a shelf in a box that smashed on the floor and that was like six feet in front of where James and his mother were standing and then the disturbances changed to other objects, didn't they? Mm. Mm. It's, as I say, because it's a very intense case, because it's just under five weeks, it it really went from just being mischievous bottle popping, though I suppose it depends how close you are to a bottle of bleach that pops its lid and sprays its contents. It's probably... It's probably not the best thing to be having a bit of fun with, um, especially in those days. God knows how strong it would have been. Um, <laughs> probably burnt through ceramic. Um, so it, it it just seems to have developed and, and progressed along because obviously after the incident in the bathroom, the, the father checked to make sure there was no strings. He tried repeating it using soaping the bottles and he couldn't make them move in that particular way. So he did what any normal person would do in that situation. He called the police. It's interesting. Hmm. <laughs> and it ended up landing in the lap of a, a detective called uh, Tozzy, I think his name was, um, who ended up sort of also starting off under the impression that it was the sun. Um, and at this point, the sun had been reduced to tears by both his father and the detective through their questioning of him because they were convinced it had to be him. Nobody else, it couldn't possibly be anything else. And he was reduced to tears. You would suspect at that point, the 1950s, father, detective, demanding you tell the truth, and he broke down. He said, no, no, I'm not doing it, and started crying. That, for me, gives this a little bit more credence, because in those days, I would suspect there are two people a child would respect would be his father, and a police officer. Well, and traumatizing. Right. I mean, yeah. just you know, sitting there being 
accused and then having it escalate to uh, the point where you know a, a police officer was involved. And I think what makes this interesting because you, you look at cases like uh, Enfield and whatnot that have had police in and out. This was an officer officer that was assigned to the case. And really? I thought that was really interesting because that doesn't really happen. And, it, uh, you know, there there's occult crimes units and things like that that are, but I mean, usually not assigned to something like this. So there there had to be something there that they were really, really questioning. Yeah. Well, apparently James Sr., Mr. Herman, was, was quite well known and very well respected, as were the family. Uh, this is This is one of those aspects that, they're not one. One of the cliches you can often get in poltergeist cases is that there was some family tension, family stress, issues. There was no kind of social friction going on in this family unit at all. To all intents and purposes, they were happily married. Mm. The kids were very doing very well at school. They had a very open, loving family. They were happy. They were affluent. They were doing well. There was no stress factor in that social unit. So, it's unusual because the other aspect of this is that James the son was 12 Lucille the daughter was 13 so you had two prepubescent teenagers or people of that age in in the same house but it was a nice it was a new house the house is only five years old I think so it was a it was a post post-war affluent suburb this was a family on the up that's interesting. Yeah, like I, mm-hmm. I know William Roll when uh, Bill Roll when he got involved with the case because they he came in on behalf of of Duke University and later on to to research that. And for for everybody listening that that doesn't know who Bill Roll is, he was uh, an incredible uh, researcher that worked for the, the Rhine and was an amazing parapsychologist and researched a lot on on uh, psychokinesis and specifically recurrent spontaneous psychokinesis or RSPK. And I know he felt like even though the the outside of the house and the family portrait basically looked pretty good, I know in one of his papers, I think it was in his 2003 papers, um, he was saying that James had pretty buried feelings of anger towards his dad. Um, And he had said that the fact that the bottles were mostly products used by the mother uh, he said further indicated that the boy had unmet dependency needs is what he was, what his take was, um, mm. which kind of makes sense in the sense that, you know, here you've got this like affluent family, like you were saying, Paul, who's under the scrutiny of the media, because like by this time we had the media involved. Let me just grab the, the note. Yeah. Newsday was involved in New York Times, London Evening News and Newsday. So you've got all these people that are involved and then you've got you know, this, I would imagine a feeling of if, if I don't, if I don't make this look like everything's okay, then, you know, I, I'm, I'm going to be, my family's going to hear about this. Um, and it kind of explains a little bit to me about where some of the poltergeist activity may have come from, because we know in cases of psychokinesis, usually it comes from a feeling of like buried frustration, buried emotions, buried rage, things like that and that seems to be where where things are popping mm. Mm. i mean that's the other aspect of this is that if if we look at that kind of aspect of it it's unusual that it eventually exploded in that direction because usually it's antisocial behavior or school that begins to fall away first if you have these kind of yeah repressed 
emotions. Mm-hmm. So it's it's interesting as well because the other aspect is some people didn't think it was James. They thought it was Lucille who was the focus. Interesting. Because whilst a lot of incidents occurred with James or in James's room or James's vicinity, a lot of people, Lucille was also there a lot of the time. Mm. So it could be said that was it this kind of, as you, as you refer to what Dr. Roll had written, that there was sibling friction there and it right. was that that was causing the problems and it might have been, for all we know, it could have been both of them lashing out yeah. because one of the strange aspects of this is that the family were devout Catholics as well mm-hmm. um, because the mum had loads of bottles of holy water right. around the house. Sure. Um, which is which is quite odd because when they call the priest in, the priest brings his own holy water. But when you read the report, she must have had at least a dozen bottles of the stuff in the house. So I don't know why she couldn't just pass him some on. It's interesting. I see kind of a, a pattern over a lot of the cases that we've covered. And I'm not saying, you know, Catholics <laughs> cause hauntings or poltergeists or anything like that. But it it, it seems like people with strong belief uh, in uh, things uh, like a religion in particular, uh, they are more apt to have this kind of uh, occurrence. I mean, you know, we look at the movie Poltergeist, for example, and, and clearly those people are are not a, a super religious family, and I, I think they're positioned in that way. Uh, but uh, in real life, we do see people who are more open to believing that is, there is some sort of something other than the material uh, that uh, somehow facilitates these kind of experiences. If, if I'm off track, let me know. <laughs> I don't think you're off track at all. I mean, because we can look even statistically at a lot of the results from things like Gansfeld experiments and whatnot, and the fact that people who are typically more open to this phenomenon being something that's real do better on those tests. So, you know, how would somebody who has, you know, no belief whatsoever do in a psychokinesis class, say, put on by the Monroe Institute, where, you know, here, learn how to bend a spoon mm-hmm. or something like that? I don't know if they would do as well. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know. Yeah, it, it's like maybe maybe the idea of the the empty vessel uh, versus the vessel that's already has this type of ble- it's it would be an interesting experiment to uh, to approach from that way. This particular <laughs> case, though, it did get quite violent. What what uh, what what sort of things happened violently that that maybe people would freak out that it happened in their home. I know some of them would would really disturb me. Well, it, it, it got bored of the bottles and started to progress rather rapidly. Um, it clearly wasn't a fan of bookcases. They tended to either be thrown to the floor or there was one in the basement that was basically rotated around and all the books fell off. Um, tables were tipped over in the, the upstairs area. Ornaments were thrown about. Uh, a sugar bowl slid off the table in front of the family, um, and and smashed. And there was other weird aspects to it, like little statues were thrown with such force that they were fixed into. I think one was a statue in the mother's bedroom that was thrown with such force it was rammed into a mirror frame, but the statue wasn't broken. 
Oh, wow. Whoa. And so there was a lot of banging and, and stuff, and it, it just carried on developing in that regard. Um, obviously, because it had got such publicity in the in the local papers and across the country, they it was one of those great moments in those days, as, as I'm sure you've seen in other such cases, that they printed their address. So, <laughs> so they started getting oh my letters gosh. from all over North America from people who were convinced that they knew what the problem was. And mm-hmm. um, several of them were saying that they were sinful and it was God that had of come course. to them. They weren't yeah. Catholic. In. Oh my God. And talk about, talk about a stigma. Cause I mean, we've got to remember too, like this was 1958, you know, different times, um, and different concept of, of the paranormal at that point. Like the paranormal was not something that was heavily on the table at this point in time. And, <laughs> You know, in, in America, I mean, we had the beginnings of of the research from from the Rhine, like J.B. Rhine and, and on psychokinesis and, and things like that. But like there really wasn't an influx publicly. I think in the in the 50s, we really seem to be kind of balancing this, this, you know, the public thinking that this was all in movies or trickery or something like that. I can't even imagine having this happen and then having a basically a public viewing of like the family and what's going on I, that just I, I can't even fathom yeah it, well to be fair that was probably one of the more reasonable explanations that the family were sent oh boy mm. uh, one of my favorites was that um, some people believed that it was Russians who were tunneling under the house on their way to invade New York um, you can certainly tell when this story was set Um there was another one that it was Martians that were trying to make contact. Um, that um, of, of that description, there were all kinds of aspects. Obviously, that it was all uh, a trick. It was all a hoax. Somebody said it was due to their drafty chimney. Um, water levels were blamed. Earthquakes. Um, sonic booms. It's a very one of those where people will give an explanation which doesn't really explain everything it might explain one or two things but um it and as i say everybody was coming around there were people stopping in the house um they had visitors people were ringing them as well because the telephone number had been published so (laughs) oh my god people would take trips come out take pictures of the house so Pratt and Roll, who investigated this, they essentially debunked all these weird uh, theories that people were coming up with. They were essentially, they were really unable to explain what was happening. It, well, yeah, they actually did a lot of scientific investigation in regards to, to what was going on, because obviously they were trying to work out about sonic booms, and, and because it was on a flight path, that was one of the early explanations that was put forward for, for things being tipped over and things that a sonic boom was coming over even though nobody reported hearing any of it but when they correlated the flight paths with the incidents they didn't match at all so that was quickly ruled out they had a a seismologist check the area there was no record of that i think they actually even had a size seismograph in the home for a bit and didn't pick anything up when the loud bangs were going off and they checked the water table to make sure that that wasn't responsible i think they had a plumber come check the plumbing uh who found out actually that the house next door was worse than theirs <laughs> yeah they, 
<laughs> I'd end up having to fix the next door's faulty piping. Uh, <laughs> they had an electrician come to see if it wasn't something else. There was people claiming it was uh, a neighbour who got a transmitter who was firing radio waves into their house, but that was proved to be incorrect. So they had a look at as much as they could possibly find out. I mean, I think even air circulation was put forward as it not not being a, a well-aerated house, and that was causing the problems. But, yeah, they, they they had a complete list of scientific possibilities and just basically went through them one by one. Wow. Yeah, I mean, to me, I mean, Bill Roll, he's one of my, my favorite researchers on, on this subject because he's, he's so thorough uh, and his ideas were so fascinating and really beyond their time in in a lot of ways. Because like you were saying, like he was looking for every possible thing. And this is such a great case to to look at that aspect because, you know, often we hear these cases and, you know, you might have somebody come in for two days or a day or two, you know, a couple hours and nothing really gets isolated or ruled out or anything like that. It's kind of a look at the phenomenon. But that was not the case in this. I mean, like you just listed a whole pile of tests. I mean, they even had, I, I, I believe, foreign matter, checked for foreign matter in the decapped bottles just to see if like there was something that was making the, the bottles pop. Um, yep. You know, uh, no connection between the electrical system they discovered and the police, I believe, check, checked for that. Um, downdrafts, like you were saying, air circulation, storm windows in the cellar apparently were removed. <laughs> um, like, I mean, it was it was crazy. I mean, they tore this house to pieces. And there was there was nothing, and I think that was my guess is that that's when when Roland Pratt really started to, to delve in to the emotional center of of the family and figure out okay wait a minute there's an there's an epicenter here how can we now it's time to stop looking at the outside and start looking at the inside and I and that's as I say one of my favorite things about Bill Roll was that he really understood that relationship between what was going on with the people versus what was going on with the phenomena. And I think this, this is such a great example of that. So the family was driven out of the house as well, were they not? Yes. Is, yeah. And yeah, so. I, I think several occasions that they just thought were valid enough. Well, this is the other aspect of this as well is it's, it didn't follow them, which has happened right. in, in some other cases. Uh, and obviously one would suggest, because as I said, James has been, fingered by several skeptical evaluations of the case mm -hmm. all claiming that he was uh, a world-class trickster or an illusionist who it, had who was no 12. interest in magic yeah well yeah you know as, yeah. as with anything this <laughs> yeah but, but nothing happened when they went other places which mm. would have which kind of makes you think well would he have known the rules of, of what was going on to not mm -hmm. try and do things somewhere else if he was doing it who knows well and it also leads a bit of credence too to the the idea that it was a dynamic that was going on within the family that had influence here you know like when as soon as you go on vacation for instance you know you're not in the same dynamic when you change a family settings it's it's a very different energy. Like hmm. when I'm if I'm taking a case, I always interview the family outside of the house first, sure. because oftentimes you see a different side of the family. You know, everybody's they're thinking different. They're in a new space. They're they don't have the the trauma that's going on around them, and things start to change. So it wouldn't surprise me if you 
took this family, you know, took the Hermans, pulled them out of that situation, plunked them in a less stressful environment, and all of a sudden, the PK quit mm-hmm. because it would that would make sense to me. Yeah, I mean, like you say, the house was fairly new, but um, did they feel cramped? I mean, there are all kinds of issues that perhaps people didn't take into consideration at that time because people would stay in in properties and and have so many people whereas these days we look back and we think how did they live like that where you you have situations where you'd have three or four people sharing a bedroom of of teenage years and you'd think god bennett that that must be the most stressful thing ever when you're 14 right you know (laughs) yep (laughs) so never mind how the parents must feel in that kind of dynamic so it's it is it is a very peculiar thing. I mean, one of the other things that often gets overlooked about this, because obviously the the ghost became known as Popper, all the bottles that popped their lids were screw caps. Mm. Oh. So, wow. This happened in my friend's home. Uh, the dad would make root beer, mm. and he, he would add one chemical too much or the lid would, and the or the lids wouldn't be on tight enough and in the middle of the night the the lids of the root beer yes. bottles would start blowing off but that yeah. was because they were just you know crimped lids rather than the fact that you just mentioned that these are are screwed on that's a, that that causes a whole different line of thought in that way mm. yeah so i think roll or it might be the roll or pratt decided to check so they used a variety of concoctions to try and replicate the screw cap popping mm-hmm. and found that either the gas just escaped or the bottle exploded they right. never repeated it um mm. because as i said the father in the beginning presumed his son must have been adding things to to the bottles because he had a he had a deep interest in science he was very academically focused on that that was tended to be his favorite subject at school at that time but nobody could replicate the events so it, it didn't cause the screw cap to unscrew and then fly off as i say the bottle would more often than not explode because of the pressure hmm. oh man there's just so many so many little factors about some of the these cases that are are fascinating because oftentimes, you know, it's so easy to negate occurrences, especially in instances of psychokinesis when people are immediately saying trickery, trickery, trickery. And it's these little details to me that really make the difference. You know, it's a lot harder to throw away the idea of these things just exploding by themselves when you realize, for example, screw cap versus, you know, a bottle stopper or a or a cinch cap or, or something like that. And I know Roll also noticed that in his measurements, at least, they showed a decline in the number of movements correlating with the distance from James. And he's, I, he, he was big on this idea that the closer an object was to the person who was, was projecting the PK, um, the further the object would go. And I know in this case, he measured that as well, where he was really looking at the idea that there was some sort of a decline effect, that the closer James was to this stuff, the 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 further it would go or the more it would move or something like that which again is really is is really quite interesting yeah yeah i mean the other aspect of this is that if if we are led to believe that james is just throwing things about and causing bots to pop their lids mm-hmm. it does make you wonder when you've got so many people watching them that nobody 
spotted anything. Obviously, there are several incidents that occurred where only James was in the room and said, oh, look what's happened. But the family were very frightened by this. They were very unhappy with the attention. They didn't court publicity. They seemed deeply uncomfortable when they had to speak to the media, I think. I'm not sure if the father even went on television and was interviewed on a on a TV show at the time as well. Because mm. um, it, it, it got that big, it ended up being on television, the story. So it's... It's one of those things that if if you've got a 12-year-old child throwing heavy objects around the house, somebody's going to get hurt eventually. Um, I know there was one incident in the basement where Detective Tozzi and James were there and they had some kind of ornamental figure which apparently weighed about 100 pounds. Oh, wow. Um, that moved across and hit the detective in the legs but didn't hurt him. Oh, that's no small thing, <laughs> you know. I mean, we we, we hear uh, about poltergeist cases where, you know, the curtains move and stuff like that. But the fact that there was a, like this 100-pound sculpture, you know, moving across the room, it didn't hurt anybody, but at the same, t- same time, that's quite a thing to move. Yep, yep, very much so. Um, and, and then as it, it sort of escalated to the, to the knockings, um, after it got bored throwing the furniture around and trying to redecorate, uh, started banging on the walls and things. Um, this is another thing where people have often said, well, it might be a nerve tremor. I know Tony Cornell, who was a British parapsychologist who had a, a, a stellar reputation over here, he once did a, a, a demonstration using a vibration plate on an abandoned house trying to replicate um the instances of a tremor causing plates or objects to fly off the walls. Mm-hmm. And I think they got that up to something where it basically sounded like somebody was drilling in the kitchen. or you could hear was... And things were just falling off gently. They weren't just flying across the room. There was no propulsion of the objects. They just fell off. Um, which clearly proved that tremors could never be sort of substantiated for, for causing the the movement of these objects several feet across rooms that was often witnessed by some people. So once again, this is something else that we've, we've seen that, I mean, he filmed that experiment as well. So it's, it's there for people to, to see that Cornell proved that it's uh, vibrations or tremors simply couldn't be responsible for what was happening either. It's always neat to know that this, this type of thing is is accessible for people to see. I, I really think that's an aspect of research that's missing now. Like I, back at, during that time period and even into the 70s, there was a there seemed to be a lot more of of that kind of a thing where researchers were really plugging hard at here's here's why this can't be and let me show you. And I like that. I like that about Cornell, and I like that about there's a, a few others that, that did the same thing where they were. I think even I think even Harry Price did this a couple of times. Not with I don't know with video, but just with uh, you know demonstrating to people and writing papers and stuff where they were really plugging the idea of let let's explain why this can't be the way it is. And mm-hmm. I I just I miss that. Mm-hmm. Well, these days that's not what people are shown are they they're usually not shown a lot and people just run about screaming 
uh, yeah. <laughs> these days, sadly. Yeah, yeah that's exactly it. <laughs> I prefer a bit, a, a much more of a, a studious show and tell kind of approach rather than the, what was that? Ah, let's all run. <laughs> so this this case, I mean, like we were saying, that it's got so many different avenues and aspects and people that were involved in this and whatever. What, at the end of this, did this poor police officer, did he have a conclusion? <laughs> or did he walk away going, what in the heck did they assign me on? Well, he, he did a very extensive, I think he did something like a 60-page report. Yeah, he was in He was in it for the long haul. Yeah, um, which some people have noticed that there are a couple of aspects to this that apparently they used uh, fingerprint powder on some objects that had been moved and then weren't moved after they'd been dusted. But then you would have to, once again, suspect that I find it very hard to believe that a child would be able to watch a police officer and note every single object. Once again, I think a 12-year-old child is not clever enough to think that he's smarter than a detective. Mm. Yeah. And I would imagine that if he had tried to continue faking things or whatever, either this would have gone on a lot longer than it did and not finish in such a whimper as well. This is the other thing. Um, or he would have been caught. And he never was. People will say, oh, well, yeah. I think he just misdirected things or he exaggerated events or or whatever. But yeah. we'd got parapsychologists, police officers, media staying in the house. You've got three, four members of the family in there. Nobody saw him do anything. Hmm. Well, and you brought up a really good point there, too. This is not only a 12-year-old, but this is a 12-year-old in 1958. Yeah. Mm -hmm. This isn't a 12-year-old in, you know, 2023 where, you know, they've got their phones and they figured out three quarters of the computer programs that they could, you know, that, that wasn't, it was very different at that point. And, you know, that's, it was a very different time. It was a different mentality. 12-year-olds then were not the 12-year-olds of now. Um, and so it, it does, it gives more support, I think, to that idea that, you know, the idea of him really purposely trying to just basically screw over police officers seems a little bit more far-fetched. In some notable cases, as even in, in, you know, as was mentioned before previously, the Enfield case, they were caught. Yeah. Trying to pull the wool over Playfair and, and Gross's eyes. Sure, yeah. And, 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 and were caught doing it. And, you know, if you've, if you've seen the house, this is not a big house. <laughs> for, for people to suggest that a child could run up into a bedroom throw something across it, run out again without either being heard or seen by anyone is is almost a paranormal event in itself. So how did this conclude? You were saying it <laughs> kind of just petered out, and it did. Yeah, um, I think Roland Pratt had come back towards the end, which um, this was the other thing. They didn't announce they were coming back, and it wasn't publicised in the press either. They just basically said, right, we're here stayed for about a week and during that week it kind of started to, to to drift down and the last event was i think they were in the kitchen they heard a pop they went into the basement and a bottle of bleach had tipped over the lid had popped off and that was the end of popper wow wow and so this case went on to inspire not only a lot of conjecture after the fact but uh it is also uh 
believed to be the inspiration for the uh, the movie Poltergeist as well. Yeah, yeah, certainly. I think it certainly got some elements of of inspiration in there. Clearly, I'm not sure what other cases Spielberg may have used because clearly mm-hmm. there's a lot that goes yeah. on in that film that didn't happen in this case. Yeah, correct. But, yeah. <laughs> unless unless they uh, there's a there's a secret file somewhere that they've yeah. never released to the public. I highly doubt which... that. <laughs> <laughs> Sadly, um, but yeah, it's it's one of those, but. Well, as as I said, it seems to be one of those cases that some people, I think if you know about the paranormal and poltergeist, it's a very well-known case. I'm still surprised that people don't know about it. And I think that's one of the aspects of this is that there's nothing really shocking in this case. There's nothing really frightening. It seems mischievous, if a little bit dangerous at times, but it's short-lived. It came from nowhere. It disappears with a whimper. Everybody carries on with their lives. It never comes back. They don't get a repeat performance. And I think it's drifted out of the headlines in regards to, especially in American poltergeist cases, because it's just quite standard. It just seems a very a very cheeky poltergeist more than anything, whereas all the other cases, there's people running out their houses in the middle of the night screaming and blood pouring down the walls allegedly and people being thrown up and downstairs. So I think the fact that it's quite a gentle haunting in comparison with some other more notorious cases has kind of seen it fall away. But I think as investigations go and the people involved in it and the the quality of their investigations, I would say that this is a probably a more thoroughly investigated case than most of the notorious ones. There's lots around the internet about it too. Like if people are interested in learning more, there's a, there's an entry on the uh, Sci Encyclopedia at the sciencyclopedia.spr.ac.uk. Just uh, type in Seaford Poltergeist there and mm-hmm. you will find all kinds of stuff. But th- this is really a, a fantastic case. Mm-hmm. I mean... I believe Roll's case notes are lodged at the University of Georgia as well. You can actually go and visit it and get the original documentation. Mm. See, that's the great thing about cases like this to me is that because they are so well documented that this is the type of thing that that you can do. You can can start to take a look at the hows, the whys, what happened. And the great thing about Bill Roll's notes is that he's so thorough in his 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 research and investigations, and I think I think today just having this conversation, you know, we projected a bunch of potential potential theories and and talked about you know what what could have started something like this, and it, it's it's a really great discussion to have. And Paul, we couldn't have had it without you, so thank you. My pleasure. Thank you for asking me. I'd like to say it's one of my favorite cases from America. Yeah, great. We're going to have you back again and again. I'm sure. I'll hold you to that. Thank you. Okay. (laughs) Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, price line. 
This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. So you have some ideas about this case that uh, you think are important for us to wrap the show up with. So let's talk about those. And uh, Chief, and the main one that you want to mention is that this was a fantastic example of psychokinesis. So let's talk about that. Yeah. And I think this is something that's so important to talk about when it comes to the phenomenon of hauntings in general, Mm -hmm. because this is something that gets confused with hauntings all the time. You know, because it's weird, right? I mean, stuff's moving around on its own. The last thing you're going to think of is, oh, maybe it's me. Right. You're going to think it's some exterior thing that's doing it. Absolutely. Yeah. So the the development of of psychokinesis and Bill Roll's uh, RSPK, which we we spoke about, is really important here. You know, he really felt that James had this kind of suppressed anger towards his dad and some dependency issues that weren't really being verbalized. Mm-hmm. And if that was the case, it really begins to explain a lot because we see very much a tie in regarding again, people's emotions and this type of activity, which is really, really significant. So, you know, we're told that we've got nothing to do with what's happening around us. And in parapsychology, that's just simply not true. Right. So in this field, it's known as something called mind-matter interaction or MMI. Okay. So some of these cases, if not most of them, really are about doing a deep dive on ourselves. It's not just thinking that this phenomenon is afflicted on us. And that's something that we've kind of grown to to believe in in this culture. We've we've really thought that, you know, I've got no control over what happens to me. Everything is just asserted on me. And we're now beginning to realize that this is a really amazing glimpse into just how powerful we really are as humans, but as spiritual beings living the human experience. Right, yeah. Really. And, you know, here you've got this potential to do this kind of a a thing and interact with our world using thoughts and emotions. And, you know, here we've covered a a case that is a little on the disturbing side. Sure. But it doesn't have to be. And that can have some pretty wonderful implications. Yeah, see, this is the thing that I really like about that idea, the idea of psychokinesis. Wouldn't it be cool if we could all kind of tap into something like this and uh, have an effect on, a different kind of effect on our environment? I mean, we, as human beings, we affect our environment. There's no, way, no two ways about it. Um, the, the environment is telling us right now by uh, heat waves and, and all kinds of craziness that's going on that we have made a difference. So it's really fascinating that maybe there's other ways that we can have an impact on our direct environment, or maybe even as a collective group, uh, were we able to focus on these kind of, it's really out there and it's really woo woo to think about. So I'm just theorizing. I'm not saying that, uh, I think we're anywhere close to being able to do this, but I think there are people who are doing it 
maybe accidentally or even intentionally, but we don't fully understand it yet, if that makes sense. Does that make sense to you? Am I on the right track? No, I I do think it makes sense. And I think we can look at some of the research that's out there that is pointing to exactly what you're talking about. Like Mm -hmm. the Monroe Institute is a really great example of this where, you know, they're teaching people how to use their mind to interact with matter around them. And they've got it down to a science. You can mm-hmm. take the course right. uh, to, to learn to do it. You know, there, there are experiments with, with meditation and, and things like that. And, and using meditation and positive emotion to right. get these, these outcomes and these, these really fascinating, fascinating results that, they're, that they've been putting out for a number of years. But, uh, you know, it's, the research is there. And I, I think if we continue to go down that path, I, I think it's really going to empower people mm-hmm. that are willing to sort of step up. But I, but I think the the caveat to that is that the people really have to be ready to let go of ego and to let go of their story. And not everybody, I think, is ready to do that. I believe that. And, and that's the thing. Not everybody's open-minded enough to even want to explore this. The minute some people hear you know, hey, perhaps there is something that we can do to have an effect on our environment in this way. The minute they hear that, their minds shut like a steel trap. They they think, okay, this is the material world that we live in, and that's all there is. But there's so much proof to the contrary. Yeah, not and not only that, but it also, it forces us to look at, oh my gosh, you know, all of these amazing, cool things that have happened to me. But it also puts the onus on, oh, my gosh, what about the stuff that I don't like? Mm-hmm. And so it takes a bit of ownership of both to right. really put your feet into some of this stuff and go, OK, you know, if I own the one side, I've got to own the other side. Now, what can I do different? Mm. So it, it really asks a big question and I think pushes people to a new understanding. But if you're willing to do the work and really as we said at the beginning, go down that rabbit hole, there are some pretty amazing and empowering things about mind-matter interaction that to me is, I think it's irreplaceable. Cool. Well, let's investigate that some more because I think, you know, this is the kind of stuff that I want to talk about on this show because I, uh, this is where sort of the rubber meets the road for me. Um, Big time. Right, you know, like people come here to learn about weird events that may have happened, but at the same time, what is behind all this? And that that's exactly what you and I discussed before we even started this podcast was, let's talk about that stuff. Yeah, well, and, and why is a case in New York in like the 1950s, why should we care now, mm-hmm. right? Why should we care now? This is why. Yeah. This is why is because this absolutely has relevance to our day to day life, not just in the world of the paranormal and spooky things, but this has relevance to you every single day. Right. So thank you for joining us on this yet another eerie expedition, dear listeners. And remember, the line between the natural and the supernatural is often a thin one. Until next time, stay curious, friends. I wish I was a thin one, but anyway. (laughs) Okay, bye. Bye. 
Supernatural Circumstances is a co-production of Entity Seeker Paranormal Research and Teachings and Good Egg Studios. This podcast is part of the Curious Cast Podcast Network. Theme music by Corey Johnson of Catalyst Records in Edmonton, Alberta. You can learn more about Morgan Knudsen at EntitySeeker.ca and learn more about me, Mike Brown, and listen to my show, Dark Poutine, at darkpoutine.com. Feel free to email the show at supernaturalcircumstances at gmail.com. Hi. Her name is Elspeth. Elspeth Tassioni. You know her as the offbeat but brilliant defense attorney from The Good Wife and The Good Fight. You've been a very busy little bee. Buzz, buzz. Now, she's in New York with the NYPD. This is very different. Better. But still using her unconventional ways to find the truth. You're trying to sniff me, Miss Tassioni? <laughs> Elspeth, new series Thursdays on Global. Stream on Stack TV.